Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Editor's Note Rhoda M. Harrison was a student at the House of Education in 1928. After graduating, she served on the staff of the PNEU School at Burgess Hill before becoming the co-principal of her own PNEU school in Hazelmere. Through her study of Charlotte Mason's writings and her own experience as a teacher, Miss Harrison became an expert in the application of Mason's ideas to the education of little children. Harrison spoke about this topic both within and without the PNEU, and several of her papers were published in the Parents' Review. Eventually, her article, Children from Five to Six, was published as a separate booklet and sold by the PNEU from at least 1952 to 1966. An original copy of this booklet is said to reside at the Armit Museum. Harrison's first article on education for the early years was published in the February 1936 issue of the Parents' Review. The ideas she expressed in this early article formed the basis for her further writings on the subject. This is the version we share today, penned by her less than a decade after her time studying at Mason's own House of Education. Miss Mason's Inspiration in the First Steps of Education by R. M. Harrison, House of Education In these days, when life demands such a high standard of attainment for any career which a boy or girl may wish to follow, Parents and educators are united in desiring the best possible education for their children. Both are anxious to neglect nothing which will help the child from the very earliest moment when he starts to learn. It is most interesting to study the way pointed out to us by Miss Mason and to see how, from the very beginning, it helps us to fit a child for life with the best possible equipment. I have heard it said by the headmaster of a famous boys' school, Men of ability are plentiful as blackberries. Men of character are few, and it is the men of character who count. Years ago, Miss Mason realized the importance of character training, and her whole plan of education is so balanced that from the start proper care is given to develop the individual and fit that individual according to his ability to be a worthy citizen. It is a pleasure to speak today of my actual experience in teaching very little children according to Miss Mason's principles, in the hope that those wishing to start little children along these lines may be helped by what I have found. Before discussing the all-important first steps, I would like to make one emphatic statement about the final results of this way of education, because nearly every mother wishing to start her children along these lines asks, where will it lead? Can we afford, in these times of competition and stress, to follow such a wide and delightful program of work as that set before us in the PU schools? The answer is decidedly yes. Children educated in the PUS are able, if it is deemed necessary, to take school certificate without undue cramming. They can gain scholarships to the university and are intelligent, well-read, interesting children with broad interests and minds eager to explore the worthwhile things which life has to offer. Let us turn, therefore, to the first steps which are so vital to the success of the whole, 
and where the mother can play so important a part. Today, the advance has been made by most people of treating a child as an individual, and they are less inclined to talk down to the children. If we can combine with this understanding of a child's ability, a willingness to enter the child's world, and see with him the wonder and adventure of discovery which greets every step of the way, we shall be more ready to give that scope for the imagination, which is part of the heritage of childhood. Compared with the rest of a natural lifetime, the period of childhood seems a short while, but nobody attempts to underestimate the importance of those years. Why are they so important? I am anxious to take the long view before embarking on the details of early education. In these first years, a child is learning more in proportion than he will learn in so short a time afterwards, and only those who teach very little children realize how big a step it is to learn to read and write. Besides this, there is the why and wherefore of all he sees and hears around him. He also lays the foundation of habits of obedience, concentration, and neatness, which will serve him ever afterwards. He brings a perfectly fresh, untried mind to bear on all he learns, but all the more powerful because it is not tired. The first lessons and impressions never seem blotted out, however many new scenes and perplexities may crowd the path of life. And we are told that the farther we travel from them, the brighter these days shine. By seeing that these first years are a happy, natural growing time, we give our children their most valuable heritage, one that can never be taken away. It has been of the greatest interest to be in close touch with a preschool class in our own school, which works according to Miss Mason's principles and uses the playroom leaflet. This class has been called into being for children who have no playmates at home and where it is not possible for the mother to give that valuable two hours in the morning to teaching the child herself. Miss Mason did not advocate that children should begin to work on the PUS program until they were six years old. Therefore, the experiences gained from the preschool class may be useful to mothers who wish to start their own children. At five years old, the child has as great an ability to learn as he will at six or seven. Nobody would force a little child to walk before his legs were strong enough. If they were so foolish, they would see dire physical results. The right moment comes when the child is ready to walk. And walk he does. With his mind, it is really the same. Great harm may be done by setting a child to routine work when he is too young, although the results may not be apparent at first and only show later when listlessness takes the place of natural keenness. We have a wonderful material upon which to work, an eager, inquiring mind, and we must see that it receives the right knowledge on which to grow. We must learn to be patient and not expect visible results too early. We must not attempt to pour knowledge into the child's mind, but rather guide that mind to work on what the child sees around him. The desire for knowledge will best be satisfied in the early days by the outdoor world. Parents desiring to interest their children must learn all they can about nature. Names of wildflowers, wild animals, birds, trees, insects, and so on. The children are keenly interested and naturally observant. 
This love for nature will be a never-ending source of joy to the children. And when they have outgrown many other interests, they will turn to this as to an old friend. One afternoon this term, I took a group of little children for a walk. And before we started, I read a list of 25 things to them which we hoped to find. For example, an acorn in a cup, a horse chestnut leaf with seven fingers, a bird's feather, etc., As soon as one little girl heard feather, she said, I know where there is one, just outside the gate. I saw it on the way to school. Then out she raced and came back with a minute sparrow's feather. No grown-up would have noticed it. But of course, the children are nearer the ground, and so see things more easily. We were out for less than an hour and found all 25 things. Much can be learnt from a walk. A stream will represent a river, a sandcastle, a mountain, a pond, a lake, etc. We make this introduction to geography by sand trays and pictures. We also encourage the children to bring wildflowers and fruits they have found, and to tell us about birds and wild animals they have noticed, as the very small children do not go for afternoon walks. The ideal way is to study all these things out of doors. The creative instinct is clamoring for outlet and is a splendid way to encourage individual development. The little people love to chat about what they are making. They retire into a world of their own invention, and if we can follow them there, they will be far more ready to share their interests. I always find it an excellent plan to work with children, then they do not feel as if they are being watched. One can then be ready to give a helping hand where required without appearing to supervise all the time. One little girl of four made a lovely picture of a black cat and said, Now I'm going to make it pink cheeks. Her mother let her go on without interrupting and saying black cats do not have pink cheeks, because any observant child knows perfectly well they have not, and this one was probably a fairy princess enchanted. The same thing with a little girl who made a mouse and then began to chalk it all colors of the rainbow. She was asked why the mouse was so colored and said, Oh, it is a circus mouse. She had seen it in all the gaudy colors of the circus. Of course, this imagination sometimes leads to the most wonderful tales, like that of the little boy who most solemnly assured me that he had been skating this term and had fallen through the ice and been eaten by a whale. We have then to make it quite clear that we understand this is an invented tale, which just seemed true at the moment, as a dream sometimes seems real, and then the child, who really does know it is an invented tale, is ready to take this means of escape and is often quite relieved that we understand. Sometimes children are unable to make things at first without constant help. They do not easily settle down to amuse themselves, And although they love listening to tales, it is not possible to read to them all the time when we want them to be quiet. One mother told me she was quite hoarse by the time bedtime came, but there was an invalid lady in the house, and it was necessary for John to be quiet, and he would not amuse himself. We found that producing large sheets of kitchen paper and letting him draw and paint on them was a huge success. He seemed unable to control his pencil or chalk on small-sized paper, but took courage when he found there was plenty of room and made a cave, a windmill, a soldier, etc., on a large scale and gained confidence as he went on. Actually, in teaching drawing, we have found this idea valuable. It makes the children bolder, and it is easier for the child to see his mistakes when they are on a large scale. 
we teach form by putting a spray of beech leaves or a twist of byrony on a sheet of white paper and letting each child have a model and see how like the real object he can make it. Most children can deal with plasticine, chalk, pastels, crayons, wool, and raffia work on coarse canvas, and they love to cut out and make scrapbooks, and all these occupations encourage them to be neat with their hands. It is interesting to see the choice of color each child will make, and they like to see and admire each other's work. Cut-out paper patterns are good also, and lovely pictures can be made without any drawing, but cutting the colored paper and pasting it onto brown or black paper. The children occupy themselves with colored bricks, dominoes, simple puzzles, etc., and this links with an introduction to number and number games. Counting different objects in the room, learning to recognize the numbers, making houses of bricks, using a different given number of bricks for each house, playing shops with counters or cardboard pennies, and measuring the number of times the lengths of a ruler will go along the edge of a table or windowsill. There are so many ways of teaching reading that I cannot say much on the subject in the time allotted to me. I will tell you briefly how we lead up to learning to read. The children get familiar with the letters and their sounds. They make letters in chalk, crown, paint, and pencil, and play games like touch something in the room beginning with B or C, etc. They learn to recognize words made up of three simple sounds and draw pictures named mill, hill, hat, bat, etc. Then, when they are quite sure of the sounds, they begin with the most attractive little reading books, with pictures and words that are chosen because the words can be found out from sounds. This gives the child confidence, and he feels he is reading by himself and is eager to get on. As unfortunately our language has many words which are not written at all as they are sounded, we must train the child's powers of observation and learn the look of certain words. The reading puzzles are the greatest help here. These are well-known nursery rhymes, one sheet the whole rhyme, and an envelope containing all the separate words in the rhyme which the child builds up as a puzzle. Writing is much helped by using the writing patterns, which the children enjoy making. These should be done by them on large-sized paper. The patterns are made from the shapes of the different letters. They help to make the child's hands steady and controlled, and are a variation from letters all the time. The children delight in listening to well-written fairy tales, and much enjoy acting them. They enjoy hearing about children of other lands, seeing pictures of foreign countries, people, and animals. They will look at maps and begin to recognize the different shapes of land, and love to sail imaginary ships from one land to another by what they consider the nearest sea route. They get some idea of history from pictures of other times, showing what ships used to be like, what people used to wear, what their houses were like, etc. All the interests should be as varied as possible, but there should be an unhurried, peaceful atmosphere. The time for these special training occupations should be about 9.30 to 12, with half an hour's break at 10.30 out of doors, and a rest before the midday meal. The child should be allowed to talk about what he is making, and given as much easy choice as possible, so that he takes a pride in what he does as his own work. A little locker or box in which to keep materials, and a cupboard for toys which the children are encouraged to keep tidy themselves, are useful training. Miss Mason is so inspiring in what she tells us about environment. 
if we see that the children's room is light and bright with a few well-chosen pictures. The children will take a pride in helping to keep their room lovely. They can find flowers and leaves on their walks and keep one vase always looking fresh all the year round. We had a table and a sunny window and an array of little clay pots made and painted by the children. Each child grew something different found by himself. Thus we had a sprouting acorn, conker, laburnum, and sycamore growing on moss. And they delighted in watching their own and each other's and keeping the moss fresh and well watered. Children vary immensely in ability at the age of five, just as they do at any other age. And when I say a child should not start routine work until he is six, I do not mean that he should be kept back from learning to read or doing simple sums, when he can do this without the slightest effort or worry. Some children seem to pick up things in a wonderful way, and as long as they have plenty of outdoor occupations, diversions, and periods of rest, this will not hurt them. For example, I have a 1B number lesson with children ages 6 to 7 in the same room in which the preschool class is playing number games, building bricks, etc. One little girl, aged 5, loved to sit and listen to the number lesson and taught herself to recognize numbers, write them, and do simple sums. There will not be time to mention all the things which children can make or learn, but the Playroom Leaflet is a help here and can be obtained from the PNEU office. We can put before the children such an interesting range of occupations that they will do them because they really want to, not because they must. This plan does not make a child selfish or willful. He loves to share his interests, and these early days described as the I age will certainly be happier if the interests are shared. If I want the red crown is followed by, oh, John can have it first, and isn't my picture lovely by... Peggy has made a beautiful picture, too. It is difficult to set an exact time for any particular lesson, as it will be quite apparent when the children want a change, and there should be plenty of scope for movement, so that in the quiet periods they will be less likely to fidget. I should say that no occupation should last longer than twenty minutes, and some ten minutes or a quarter of an hour. Each day should be so varied that there is a certain period for tales, reading, writing, handwork, geography, history, games, singing, and poetry. There is a natural discipline that comes from interest in the thing to be done, and a child will see quickly that he must be quiet to enjoy a tale, must sit still to do a careful painting, and must take his turn with the other children and not get all the attention. He is eager not to hold up the interesting thing to be done, and will not, for example, deliberately leave a door open if we are waiting to begin until that door is shut. A lot of don'ts are merely an invitation to most of us to do, a perverted desire for knowledge, and idle threats are useless. If there are certain clearly understood do's, which if not obeyed bring a natural consequence, it will be far better. Children are keenly alive to justice and understand what is reasonable, right, and kind. They really enjoy being helpful, unselfish, and tidy, but it does not always come naturally to them. For almost any real naughtiness, there is a cause which, if removed, will do away with the need for punishment. Take the example of the little girl this term, who was often slow to get ready for outdoor break, lost her shoes, or her scarf, or her lunch, and always on a Monday or Thursday. 
I found that these were skipping days. Most of the children loved skipping, but she was afraid of the big rope and afraid that the others would laugh at her. As soon as she understood that nobody forced her to skip, she ran out to play as quickly as the others, and before long plucked up courage to learn, and now skips as well as the others. There undoubtedly are cases of real naughtiness which it would not be kind to pass over, in which need dealing with as justly as we can. But the ideal we work towards is that of interests which keep a child so happily occupied that he does not think of being naughty. Children have a delightful sense of humor, and often a fit of temper, obstinacy, or the sulks can be driven away in a flash if we can make the child laugh and thus change his thoughts quickly. I have not actually mentioned the hymns and prayers which little children love to learn, or the Bible stories which they delight in listening to. There is no doubt that little children have a knowledge of God and the angels which is quite beautiful and simple. It is my experience that they teach me more than I can ever teach them. In the words of Miss Mason, Perhaps it is not too beautiful a thing to believe that as a babe turns to his mother, though he has no power to say her name, as the flowers turn to the sun, so the hearts of little children turn to their Savior and God with unconscious delight and trust. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. 